Chapter Eight, Part Four of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Eight, Part Four, Escape from the Ice. Early next morning, April 15th, all hands were astir. The sun soon shone brightly, and we spread out our wet gear to dry, till the beach looked like a particularly disreputable gypsy camp. The boots and clothing had suffered considerably during our travels. I had decided to send Wild along the coast in the Stancomb Wills to look for a new camping ground, and he and I discussed the details of the journey while eating our breakfast of hot seal-steak and blubber. The camp I wished to find was one where the party could live for weeks or even months in safety, without danger from sea or wind in the heaviest winter gale. Wild was to proceed westward along the coast, and was to take with him four of the fittest men, Marston, Crean, Vincent, and McCarthy. If he did not return before dark, we were to light a flare, which would serve him as a guide to the entrance of the channel. The Stancomb Wills pushed off at 11 a.m., and quickly passed out of sight around the island. Then Hurley and I walked along the beach towards the west, climbing through a gap between the cliff and a great detached pile of basalt. The narrow strip of beach was cumbered with masses of rock that had fallen from the cliffs. We struggled along for two miles or more, in search for a place where we could get the boats ashore, and make a permanent camp in the event of wild search proving fruitless. But, after three hours' vain toil, we had to turn back. We had found on the far side of the pillar of basalt a crevice in the rocks beyond the reach of all but the heaviest gales. Rounded pebbles showed that the sea reached the spot on occasions. Here I decided to deport ten cases of Bovril sledging ration, in case of our having to move away quickly. We could come back for the food at a later date, if opportunity offered. Returning to the camp, we found the men resting or attending to their gear. Clark had tried angling in the shallows off the rocks, and had secured one or two small fish. The day passed quietly. Rusty needles were rubbed bright on the rocks, and cloths were mended and darned. A feeling of tiredness due, I suppose, to reaction after the strain of the preceding days, overtook us. But the rising tide, coming farther up the beach than it had done on the day before, forced us to labour at the boats, which we hauled slowly to a higher ledge. We found it necessary to move our makeshift camp nearer the cliff. I portioned out the available ground for the tents, the galley and other purposes, as every foot was of value. When night arrived, the Stancomb Wills was still away, so I had a blubber flare lit at the head of the channel. About 8 p.m. we heard a hail in the distance. We could see nothing, but soon, like a pale ghost out of the darkness, came the boat, the faces of the men showing white in the glare of the fire. Wild ran around the beach with the swell, and in a couple of minutes we had dragged her to a place of safety. I was waiting Wild's report with keen anxiety and my relief was great when he told me that he had discovered a sandy spit seven miles to the west, about two hundred yards long, running out at right angles to the coast, 
and terminating at the seaward end in a mass of rock. A long snow-slope joined the spit at the shore-end, and it seemed possible that a dug-out could be made in the snow. The spit, in any case, would be a great improvement on our narrow beach. Wilde added that the place he described was the only possible camping-ground he had seen. Beyond to the west and southwest lay a frowning line of cliffs and glaciers, sheer to the water's edge. He thought that in very heavy gales, either from the southwest or east, the spit would be spray-blown, but that the seas would not actually break over it. The boats could be run up on a shelving beach. After hearing this good news, I was eager to get away from the beach camp. The wind was blowing was favourable for the run along the coast. The weather had been fine for two days, and a change might come at any hour. I told all hands that we would make a start on the following morning. A newly killed seal provided a luxurious supper of steak and blubber, and then we slept comfortably till the dawn. The morning of April 17th came fine and clear. The sea was smooth, but in the offing we could see a line of pack which seemed to be approaching. We had noticed already pack and bergs being driven by the current to the east, and then sometimes coming back with a rush to the west. The current ran as fast as five miles an hour, and it was a set of this kind that had delayed Wilde on his return from the spit. The rise and fall of the tide was only about five feet at this time, but the moon was making for full, and the tides were increasing. The appearance of ice emphasised the importance of getting away promptly. It would be a serious matter to be prisoned on the beach by the pack. The boats were soon afloat in the shallows, and after a hurried breakfast all hands worked hard getting our gear and stores aboard. A mishap befell us when we were launching the boats. We were using oars as rollers, and three of these were broken, leaving us short for the journey that had still to be undertaken. The preparations took longer than I had expected. Indeed, there seemed to be some reluctance on the part of several men to leave the barren safety of the little beach and venture once more on the ocean. But the move was imperative, and by 11 a.m. we were away, the James Caird leading. Just as we rounded the small island occupied by the ringed penguins, the Willowa swooped down from the 2,000-foot cliffs behind us, a herald of the southerly gale that was to spring up within half an hour. Soon we were straining at the oars with the gale on our bows. Never had we found a more severe task. The wind shifted from the south to the southwest, and the shortage of oars became a serious matter. The James Caird, being the heaviest boat, had to keep a full complement of rowers, while the Dudley Docker and the Stancombe Wheels went short, and took turns using the odd oar. A big swell was thundering against the cliffs, and at times we were almost driven onto the rocks by swirling green waters. We had to keep close inshore in order to avoid being embroiled in the raging sea, which was lashed snow-white and quickened by the furious squalls into a living mass of sprays. After two hours of strenuous labour we were almost exhausted, but we were fortunate enough to find comparative shelter behind a point of rock. Overhead towered the sheer cliffs for hundreds of feet, the sea-birds that fluttered from the crannies of the rock, dwarfed by the height. The boats rose and fell in the big swell, 
but the sea was not breaking in our little haven, and we rested there while we ate our cold rations. Some of the men had to stand by the oars in order to pole the boats off the cliff face. After half an hour's pause, I gave the order to start again. The Dudley Docker was pulling with three oars, as the Stancomb Wills had the odd one, and she fell away to leeward in a particularly heavy squall. I anxiously watched her battling up against wind and sea. It would have been useless to take the James Caird back to the assistance of the Dudley Docker, since we were hard-pressed to make any progress ourselves in the heavier boat. The only thing was to go ahead and hope for the best. All hands were wet to the skin, and many men were feeling the cold severely. We forged on slowly, and passed inside a great pillar of rock, standing out to sea, and towering to a height of about 2,400 foot. A line of reefs stretched between the shore and this pillar, and I thought, as we approached, that we would have to face the raging sea outside. But a break in white surf revealed a gap in the reef, and we laboured through, with the wind driving clouds of spray on our port beam. The Stancomb wheels followed safely. In the stinging spray I lost sight of the Dudley Docker altogether. It was obvious she would have to go outside the pillar, as she was making so much leeway. But I could not see what happened to her, and I dared not pause. It was a bad time. At last, about 5 p.m., the James Caird and the Stancomb Wills reached comparatively calm water, and we saw Wild's Beach just ahead of us. I looked back vainly for the Dudley Docker. Rocks studied the shallow water around the spit, and the sea surged amongst them. I ordered the Stancomb Wills to be run on to the beach at the place that looked smoothest, and in a few moments the first boat was ashore, the men jumping out and holding her against the receding wave. Immediately I saw she was safe, I ran the James Caird in. Some of us scrambled up the beach, through the fringe of the surf, and slipped the paint around a rock, so as to hold the boat against the backwash. Then we began to get the stores and gear out, working like men possessed, for the boats could not be pulled up till they had been emptied. The blubber stove was quickly alight, and the cook began to prepare a hot drink. We were labouring at the boats, when I noticed Rickinson turn white and stagger in the surf. I pulled him out of reach of the water, and sent him up to the stove, which had been placed in the shelter of some rocks. McIlroy went to him, and found that his heart had been temporarily unequal to the strain placed upon it. He was in a bad way, and needed prompt medical attention. There are some men who will do more than their share of work and who will attempt more than they are physically able to accomplish. Rickinson was one of these eager souls. He was suffering, like many other members of the expedition, from bad salt-water boils. Our wrists, arms, and legs were attacked. Apparently this infliction was due to constant soaking with seawater, the chafing of wet clothes, and exposure. I was very anxious about the Dudley Docker, and my eyes as well as my thoughts were turned eastward as we carried the stores ashore. But within half an hour the missing boat appeared, labouring through the spume-white sea, and presently she reached the comparative calm of the bay. We watched her coming with that sense of relief that the mariner feels when he crosses the harbour bar. The tide was going out rapidly, 
and Worsley lightened the Dudley Docker by placing some cases on an outer rock, where they were retrieved subsequently. Then he beached his boat, and with many hands at work we soon had our belongings ashore, and our three craft above high watermark. The spit was by no means an ideal camping-ground. It was rough, bleak, and inhospitable, just an acre or two of rock and shingle, with the sea foaming round it, except where the snow-slope, running up to a glacier, formed the landward boundary. But some of the larger rocks provided a measure of shelter from the wind, and as we were clustered round the blubber-stove, with the acrid smoke blowing into our faces, we were quite a cheerful company. After all, another stage of the homeward journey had been accomplished, and we could afford to forget for an hour the problems of the future. Life was not so bad. We ate our evening meal while the snow drifted down from the surface of the glacier, and our chilled bodies grew warm. Then we dried a little tobacco at the stove, and enjoyed our pipes before we crawled into our tents. The snow had made it impossible for us to find the tide-line, and we were uncertain how far the sea was going to enroach upon our beach. I pitched my tent on the seaward side of the camp, so that I might have early warning of danger. And, sure enough, about two a.m., a little wave forced its way under the tent-cloth. This was a practical demonstration that we had not gone far enough back from the sea, but in the semi-darkness it was difficult to see where we could find safety. Perhaps it was fortunate that experience had inured us to the unpleasantness of sudden forced changes of camp. We took down the tents and re-pitched them close against the high rocks at the seaward end of the spit, where large boulders made an uncomfortable resting-place. Snow was falling heavily. Then all hands had to assist in pulling the boats farther up the beach, and at this task we suffered a serious misfortune. Two of our four bags of clothing had been placed under the bilge of the James Cayard, and before we realised the danger, a wave had lifted the boat and carried the two bags back into the surf. We had no chance of recovering them. This accident did not complete the tale of the night's misfortunes. The big eight-man tent was blown to pieces in the early morning. Some of the men who had occupied it took refuge in other tents, but several remained in their sleeping-bags under the fragments of cloth until it was time to turn out. A southerly gale was blowing on the morning of April 18th, and the drifting snow was covering everything. The outlook was cheerless indeed, and we could not yet yield to the desire to remain in the sleeping-bags. Some sea-elephants were lying about the beach above high-water mark, and we killed several of the younger ones for their meat and blubber. The big tent could not be replaced, and in order to provide shelter for the men, we turned the Dudley Docker upside down, and weighed up the weather-side with boulders. We also lashed the painter and stern-rope round the heaviest rocks we could find, so as to guard against the danger of the boat being moved by the wind. The two bags of clothing were bobbing about amid the brash and glacier ice to the windward side of the spit, and it did not seem possible to reach them. The gale continued all day, and the fine drift from the surface of the glacier was added to the big flakes of snow falling from the sky. I made a careful examination of the spit, with the object of ascertaining its possibilities as a camping-ground. A 
Apparently, some of the beach lay above high water mark, and the rocks that stood above the shingle gave a measure of shelter. It would be possible to mount the snow slope towards the glacier in fine weather, but I did not push my exploration in that direction during the gale. At the seaward end of the spit was the mass of rock already mentioned. A few thousand ringed penguins, with some gentoos, were on these rocks, and we had noted this fact with a great deal of satisfaction at the time of our landing. The ringed penguin is by no means the best of the penguins from the point of view of the hungry traveller, but it represents food. At 8 a.m. that morning, I noticed the ringed penguins mustering in orderly fashion close to the water's edge, and thought that they were preparing for the daily fishing excursion, but presently it became apparent that some important move was on foot. They were going to migrate, and with their departure much valuable food would pass beyond our reach. Hurriedly we armed ourselves with pieces of sledge-runner and other improvised clubs, and started towards the rookery. We were too late. The leaders gave their squawk of command, and the columns took to the sea in unbroken ranks. Following their leaders, the penguins dived through the surf, and reappeared in the heaving water beyond. A very few of the weaker birds took fright, and made their way back to the beach, where they fell victims later to our needs. But the main army went northwards, and we saw them no more. We feared that the Gentoo penguins might follow the habits of their ringed cousins, but they stayed with us. Apparently they had not the migratory habit. They were comparatively few in number, but from time to time they would come in from the sea and walk up our beach. The Gentoo is the most strongly marked of all the smaller varieties of penguins, as far as colouring is concerned. And it far surpasses the Adelie in weight of legs and breast, the points that particularly appealed to us. The deserted rookery was sure to be above high water mark at all times, and we mounted the rocky ledge in search of place to pitch our tents. The penguins knew better than to rest where the sea could reach them, even when the highest tide was supported by the strongest gale. The disadvantages of a camp on the rookery were obvious. The smell was strong, to put it mildly, and was not likely to grow less pronounced when the warmth of our bodies thawed the surface. But our choice of places were not wide, and that afternoon we dug out a site for two tents in the debris of the rookery, levelling it off with snow and rocks. My tent, number one, was pitched close under the cliff, and there, during my stay on Elephant Island, I lived. Crean's tent was close by, and the other three tents, which had fairly clean snow under them, were some yards away. The fifth tent was a ramshackle affair. The material of the torn eight-man tent had been drawn over a rough framework of oars, and shelter of a kind provided for the men who occupied it. The arrangement of our camp, the checking of our gear, the killing and skinning of seals and sea-elephants occupied us during the day, and we took to our sleeping-bags early. I and my companions in number one tent were not destined to spend a pleasant night. The heat of our bodies soon melted the snow and refuse beneath us, and the floor of the tent became an evil-smelling yellow mud. The snow drifting from the cliff above us weighted the sides of the tent, 
and during the night a particularly stormy gust brought our little home down on top of us. We stayed underneath the snow-laden cloth till the morning, for it seemed a hopeless business to set about re-pitching the tent amid the storm that was raging in the darkness of the night. The weather was still bad on the morning of April 19th. Some of the men were showing signs of demoralization. They were disinclined to leave the tents when the hour came for turning out, and it was apparent that they were thinking more of the discomforts of the moment than of the good fortune that had brought us to sound ground and comparative safety. The condition of the gloves and headgear, shown me by some discouraged men, illustrated the proverbial carelessness of the sailor. The articles had frozen stiff during the night, and the owners considered, it appeared, that this state of affairs provided them with a grievance, or at any rate gave them the right to grumble. They said that they wanted dry clothes, and that their health would not admit of their doing any work. Only by rather drastic methods were they induced to turn to. Frozen gloves and helmets undoubtedly are very uncomfortable, and the proper thing is to keep these articles thawed by placing them inside one's shirt during the night. The southerly gale, bringing with it much snow, was so severe that as I went along the beach to kill a seal, I was blown down by a gust. The cooking pots from number two ten took a flying run into the sea at the same moment. A case of provisions, which had been placed on them to keep them safe, had been capsized by a squall. These pots, fortunately, were not essential, since nearly all our cooking was done over the blubber stove. The galley was set up by the rocks close to my tent, in a hole we had dug through the debris of the penguin rookery. Cases of stores gave some shelter from the wind, and a spread sail kept some of the snow off the cook when he was at work. He had not much idle time. The amount of seal and sea-elephant steak and blubber consumed by a hungry party was almost incredible. He did not lack assistance. The neighbourhood of the blubber-stove had attractions for every member of the party. But he earned everybody's gratitude by his unflagging energy in preparing meals that to us at least was savoury and satisfying. Frankly, we needed all the comfort that the hot food could give us. The icy fingers of the gale searched every cranny of our beach, and pushed relentlessly through our worn garments and tattered tents. The snow, drifting from the glacier and falling from the skies, swathed us and our gear, and set traps for our stumbling feet. The rising sea beat against the rocks, and shingle and tossed fragments of floe ice within a few feet of our boat. Once, during the morning, the sun shone through the racing clouds, and we had a glimpse of blue sky. But the promise of fair weather was not redeemed. The consoling feature of the situation was that our camp was safe. We could endure the discomforts, and I felt that all hands would benefit by the opportunity for rest and recuperation. End of chapter 8, part 4